Welcome back to The Permanent Record. We've been on a long break, but we're back with a brand new, very special episode. I'm Josh Spickler, the Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization located in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. We're back with a very special interview of the newly elected district attorney in Shelby County, Steve Mulroy. Steve was elected on August 4th and took office on September 1st. His first week in office was marred by some of the worst incidents of crime Memphis has seen in a long time. Uh, Steve and his staff of more than 200 people are responsible for prosecuting every crime in Tennessee's second largest county. Steve's got some priorities that he campaigned on, and we talked to him about what those priorities are and how he's going about uh, implementing them in his first few months in office. We talked about that first week and what it was like for Steve personally. We also got into some of Steve's hidden talents, some things you may not know about him. We recorded this interview live in front of a small group of Just City supporters at Crosstown Concourse on September 29th. I hope you enjoy the interview. So we're um, recording this on September 29th, so we're nearly two months away from the election. A, um, a pretty convincing win, 12 points I think you won. Uh, so how do you interpret a win like that, um, and how do you, what does that mean to you from the community when they choose you by 12 points, when they choose a different direction? Uh, what's well, that mean? I mean, I think it's clearly a mandate for change, and I'm claiming it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Care to expound on that? What does change, okay. what does change look like, Steve? Yeah, we'll have the first six-minute podcast. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we, um, we talked about it for nine months on the campaign trail about how we had been doing the same thing over and over again for years. Over the last decade, violent crime continued to rise, and our solution always seemed to be let's lock more people up and let's lock them up longer. And clearly that hadn't been working, and uh, although you don't want to blame any one person for it, the lesson we took from that was what we've been doing ain't been working and we need change. Um, and I talked for nine months about what that change would look like, and it's a lot of the same kinds of things that Just City has been talking about for years. And the, the public knew quite well what the choices were. This was one of those elections where it wasn't about who had the best spin doctor. It wasn't a Coke versus Pepsi uh, contest. There were two starkly different visions of criminal justice. The public had a clear choice, and uh, they chose reform, and that's what they're going to get. Yeah, there were more elections that uh, sort of, I think, indicated the desire of the electorate. Uh, one, the most, I think, obvious one being the juvenile court judge, where Tarek Sugarman won. Um, so what do you think shifted in the public's consciousness, if anything? Well, for one thing, you know, I don't want to um, give myself all the credit, right? I'm so brilliant. I'm such a great candidate, and it's all about me. For one thing, the, uh, the demographics of the county have been shifting. You know, let's be realistic about it. The county is bluer now than it was eight years ago and eight years before that. Um, I also think that, you know, the, 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 the George Floyd um, summer and uh, Black Lives Matter before that. We had been hearing about mass incarceration 
in the last decade in a way that we hadn't really been before, and I think the public became aware of it and became conscious of it uh, and sensitized to it in a way that it hadn't before. So the, the, the public was ripe for that message in a way that it hadn't been before. Um, and to give myself a little bit of credit, I think maybe some of the candidates we had uh, launched in the past weren't, well, were, were suboptimal, <laughs> let's put it that way. So. Fair, suboptimal, we'll go with that. Um, but even so, there are people who didn't vote for you. Mm. Uh, there are people who didn't vote for you in a primary. And I forgive them. <laughs> <laughs> who didn't vote for you in a primary, who certainly didn't vote for you in the general. Mm -hmm. um, some because they may have been hesitant to adopt your, your vision of reform. Mm -hmm. Others may not have because they <coughs> think uh, a black leader would have been better in this role. What do you say to the people of Shelby County who didn't vote for you? Well, for the people who didn't vote me, uh, vote for me in the primary because of you know, diversity concerns, um, I, I understand and I sympathize. I fought for diversity my entire career and um, you know, the consolation prize for them I think is that they will see that we will be significantly increasing the diversity of uh, the office. I am in actively engaged in affirmative outreach to HBCUs, to the, the National Bar Association, everywhere we can go. And um, I think they will see by the end of the year a significantly uh, more diverse DA staff than they had seen uh, before. And um, I'm hoping that that plus my uh, natural magnetic charm will, uh, will win them over. And to the people that didn't vote for me in the general, um, you know, perhaps largely because they didn't share my vision of reform, as you said, or thought that I was quote unquote soft on crime, or maybe they didn't know much about it one way or the other, but after a half a million dollar uh, campaign designed to convince people falsely that I'm in favor of defunding the police and letting violent criminals um, out of prison, um, I think maybe by the end of the year or thereabouts, uh, when they see how serious I am about uh, focusing on violent crime and how I am not trying to defund the police and I'm not trying to let violent criminals out of prison, uh, maybe they'll give me a chance to. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So, um, as we all know, I don't have to recount the week after you <laughs> took the oath of office. You right. didn't have much time to settle in. Mm, um, indeed. indeed. And, in fact, uh, just I think today or yesterday, there were a slew of new indictments in one of those crimes um, uh, handed down. Um, that was a very traumatic week for me. Um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. We'll talk about you in a minute, but um, <laughs> and probably for many of you are, here. Are you doing okay, Josh? I want to make sure <laughs> it wasn't too tough for yeah. you. Okay. That's <laughs> this podcast is about really it's cheaper than therapy for me. Um, how do we? I mean, in all seriousness, how do we move forward as a community um, f after such a, tra a traumatic week? After after a, a, a like a collective, uh, you know, fear uh, and 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 the awfulness that was. Uh, the first 48 hours of your tenure, right. um, what do you say to us? And you've said many things in the right. media since then, of right. course, but what do you say to, to this room and on this podcast? Well, so l let me start with the first part of your question before I go to the second uh, part of your question and just acknowledge you're absolutely right. Um, you know, many people have told me that I have to have the all-time record for the worst first week as a DA anywhere in the country. Um, and, you know, and obviously it's, it's tragic. And, you know, as I said at the time, and I s continue to say, you know, um, prayers for the, the victims and their families, and we need to uh, you know, keep those in, in our minds. And I, I will talk seriously about what we're going to do in a second, but I will point out that um, during the campaign, strangers kept coming up to me and s looking at me and saying, 
you need to win this thing, okay? Don't screw this up. This is important. I was like, okay, no pressure, no pressure. Then in the month after, strangers kept coming up to me and saying, I wouldn't take your job for all the money in the world. Man, do I not envy you. The people inside the office kept saying, it's really not this bad normally. Really, it's, this is, it's really not like this. At the end of the first week, the commercial appeal uh, reporter asked me re to reflect on my job after uh, week one, and I told him that I was calling the election commission about a recount. <laughs> uh, um, they didn't return your call. <laughs> no, no, as is often the case, um, but that's a whole other story. Uh, um, but, you know, but seriously, um, you know, uh, the, the, the call to, 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 uh, for prayer that I've said at the time of the midnight uh, press conference, you know, the night of that, the, you know, the, the, the murder spree was heartfelt because I thought the, the community was reeling. I mean, we had just had a lockdown. People were frightened. People were outraged. People were concerned as well they, uh, they might be. And I thought we needed to acknowledge uh, that emotion. But, um, you know, moving on, you know, like I've said before, you know, uh, you can be a progressive prosecutor, but still acknowledge that repeat violent offenders deserve a strong response. And that's what they're going to get from this district attorney's office. And that's what they have to get when you have horrific crimes like we saw in that first week. Um, longer term, you know, we need to do, we need to do everything that we talked about during the campaign about ways to reduce crime, but also to do it in a fair manner that was not racially discriminatory and did not just think that locking people up and throwing away the key was the sole solution. Uh, we need to work in, in a balanced way on uh, prevention and intervention, as well as enforcement. And none of that's changed. I mean, maybe it's in heightened awareness and, and uh, um, in stark relief because of the horrible events of that first week of September. But the fundamentals haven't changed, and uh, everything we talked about during the campaign is what we're going to continue to do. Great. Let's uh, stick with that first week of September. Just one more question. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like for you when you, when you are no longer the district attorney and you're writing your book and you think back to that week? Like, tell us, share a moment that will always be with you. What was it like? Right. Well, I'm hoping that by then I will have no memory of that first week <laughs> in September. I hope so. Too. That would be better for my mental health. I think. Um, I think uh, you know. <clears throat> A stark moment was um, I was I was heading home the day of the uh, murder spree, and then I started to get texts about what was going on, and I realized well I can't go home, so I ended up at the command center, and you know Mayor Strickland and I were standing there um, trying to stay out of the way, and you know we watched in real time as you know they had these big screens up on the board and they were trying to track uh, the um, perpetrators' whereabouts, and you know, there's a lot of hubbub that suddenly someone would hold up a cell phone and say, quiet, we're now getting a report that he's, you know, southbound on so-and-so, and then, you know, everything would, they would, you know, and it was, it was intense, you know, it was, uh, it was high drama, and then heading to the intensity, um, for me anyway, was how do you respond after he had been uh, apprehended safely? Uh, how do you respond when you start to find out, okay, this is what had happened to his record, and you know, now suddenly the people started saying, okay, now how do we fix blame, and how do we spin this in real time, you know, and is it really, if it, is it really just the absence of truth in sentencing that really explains this, or was it a bad plea deal by my uh, predecessor, was it this, or was it that? Um, there was a lot of 
you know, a roiling of emotions, you know, for the first couple of hours, it was, my God, you know, will there be any more murders? Can we get this guy? Can we get this guy with any further bloodshed? And then that shifted almost immediately into, well, what do you say to the public about this? And what spin are they going to put on it versus us putting on it? And, you know, how is Nashville going to react? Um, and all of it within a, a few hours. And then we had this surreal midnight press conference, you know, uh, at City Hall. And, um, you know, I thought, I I is this the job? Is, is this the way it's going to be for the next eight years? Um, and then, you know, <laughs> another funny little ironic thing, <clears throat> and the AP re reporter that did an interview about it um, caught me on it. Uh, he doesn't miss a trick that Adrian Sainz, um, I'm walking out of the press conference, and it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking with about 10 of the highest brass of Memphis Police Department, and they're all going their separate ways. And they say, well, would, you know, it's really late. Where did you park? Would you like a, an escort to your car? I'm like, nah, I don't need any escort. I'm fine. You know, I'm a big, strong guy. I can take care of myself. And then I walk away, and then as I'm getting to my car, a street person approaches me in a somewhat seemingly aggressive way. I mean, gets real close, um, and <laughs> the AP reporter is like a block away, and he's watching, and he is saying to his fellows, do we need to go in there and rescue the DA? You know, is it? And of course, you know, that night we're all a little bit on edge, right? So it's, you know, it's possible that I maybe interpreted things a, a little bit differently than I might have another way. But, you know, a second later, you know, he starts to tell me his story about how he had lost his daughter and would I pray with him. And, you know, and so we had a, a conversation and we walked together and, you know, I respected him as a human being, you know, and so it was fine. But as I was driving away, I was thinking, you know, what are the odds? Because <laughs> just five minutes earlier, I was like, I don't need your stinking police escort. What could possibly happen to me in Memphis at one o'clock in the morning? And then, of course, this happens. So. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so you've shared a little bit about kind of your, we, and we know obviously because you just had a campaign on your vision um, for public safety, but maybe say a little bit more about your grand vision mm -hmm. for, for what a safe Shelby County looks like and how do you see us getting there? I mean, it's, it's a hard path for a lot of us to see. Yeah, well, violent crime has been rising for the last decade. It's not going to turn around overnight. You know, I see this as a, a long-term project where we start to flatten the curve and then we start to bend the curve and maybe we, you know, over the, over a, a year's period, we get to something a little more tolerable. You know, crime, including violent crime, will never be zero. Um, but it doesn't need to be at the unacceptably high levels we have now. Um, you know, I have said this during the campaign, and if you ask me, you know, what is my three-point plan for violent crime, I, c I can, you know, rattle off a few things, and we're doing some initiatives now that we could talk about in a moment. But really, at the end of the day, for me, the public has to cooperate with law enforcement by providing tips, reporting crimes, agreeing to serve as witnesses. And they're not going to do that if they lack faith in the fundamental fairness of the criminal justice system. And the Memphis and Shelby Crime Commission's own polling data shows that we, that faith is in the toilet, um, particularly in the African-American community. And so I see the overall reforms that I've been talking about, and I know that Just City has been talking about for years about fairness, not at, just as an end in and of themselves, although it's a, a useful and worthy end, but as a means to safety. Um, so as I said, you know, on uh, in my swearing in, it's not 
fairness versus safety. It's not even a balance between fairness and safety. It's fairness as a means of getting to safety. And, and I think we'll do both and we'll get there. Yeah, excellent. Well, let's, um, well, let's one, more, one more question sort of on the, the, the generalities and we'll get to the specifics and some of your priorities. But there's this, there's this tension, particularly right now in the wake of the week we just talked about of, of evidence and data versus the sort of the almost knee-jerk, I would say, that's an opinion, uh, response to uh, events like this. Um, how, do you, how do you walk that line? How do you um, address the clear problem, address the specific cases, um, but maintain fidelity to what science says, to what studies show works to keep communities safer and works to deter and to rehabilitate people? There is a tension. And the tension is in stark relief in the moment when news of a horrific crime first occurs and everyone starts to start saying, well, if we had done this, this couldn't have happened. If we had done that, it couldn't happen. Um, and of course, sometimes the assertions are just plain wrong. I mean, had truth in sentencing applied um, to the uh, you know, prior crime of uh, Ezekiel Kelly, um, he would have, he would um, still have been out in time to commit the crime that he did. So there really isn't a but for causation um, because of a lack of applying truth in sentencing. But I guess the larger point is, even if there was, is that the way we're going to make our decisions? Are we going to take single uh, extraordinary cases and then from them make broad generalizations about what legislative policy or criminal justice reform policy should be? And the answer is obviously no. The answer is obviously we look at the data, we look at all of the cases together, and we look at broad trends. It is very hard to say that to the public in the immediate aftermath of a horrific crime. Um, and I think that's why that night I thought now is not the time to get into legislative policy debates. Now is not the time to try to score political points. Now is the time to acknowledge and empathize with the emotions that the entire city was feeling and then leave for another time the, um, the, you know, the political point scoring and the, and, and the debates. But you know, I have been pleasantly surprised and somewhat encouraged both during the campaign and even during this first month and even in the uh, aftermath of these horrific events that after a day or two, after people have calmed down, they are receptive to the argument that, you know, just locking more people up and locking them up for longer, which is what we've been doing all this time, isn't the answer, or at least it isn't the sole answer. And, you know, people that I wouldn't have expected to be receptive are receptive when I tell them, look, the data shows if we do this, it won't actually reduce crime. And that the way you're going to reduce crime would be more effective is if you work on prevention strategies and intervention strategies. And you know, people nod and they say, you know, you're right. Uh, that we have to have to do it all. Um, and so, I guess that gives me a little bit of hope. You know, I was doing an interview with um, Fox News, the national Fox News. You know, and you can imagine that I was getting some questions that were on the skeptical end of things. Um, but one thing which sort of hit home was I said to them, I talked about the data, and I said, look, you know, you can either do what makes you feel good, or you can do what works. We tried to get Britt Hume to come and do this interview tonight, but <laughs> he doesn't return my calls. Um, so you just announced today the creation of a cold case unit. Um, 
as one of your first concrete steps. Uh, mm -hmm. Why did you announce that so early first, maybe? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, you know, talk about a few more things that we might expect in the next few, few months. Right. Well, I mean, you want to start out by announcing the things that you can do yourself internally using your own staff. You know, there are some things we're going to need cooperation uh, with other, you know, units of government, and in some cases we're going to need uh, legislative change, which is down the road. Um, but when there are things that you can control yourself, those are things that you want to roll out first. But I also wanted to roll out something early on to reassure those who are skeptical of me that um, violent crime is a priority. And uh, it's not just talking points when I say it, I actually mean it. Now, in this particular instance, you know, we've got data that we all know that a small percentage of repeat offenders are responsible for a large percentage of the violent crime. So if you can, um, if you can identify some of these people and, uh, and, and take care of them, incapacitate them, then that will, re that will prevent crimes down the line because these same people are repeating of offending. Um, and that's why I think the cold case unit will, uh, will be effective. The, we have some low-hanging fruit. We have, for example, cases where we have warrants on somebody, but we weren't able to serve the warrants. But I have 21 criminal investigators inside my, does that mean I have to stop? Is that, it, um, Jeff's, Jeff's late for dinner. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I have 21 criminal investigators who are very good at finding people. You know, and so if we can find uh, some of these people and we can, you know, take care of them, that will prevent further crimes down the road, as well as providing solace to victims' families who think that the system has given up on them. So um, I think, you know, th there's a, a utility in doing this now, and I want to commend uh, Memphis Police Chief. Uh, C.J. Davis, she immediately saw the value in it and is partnering with us and she's cooperating with us and I, I think that is the first of perhaps many productive partnerships I'll have with, uh, with, uh, with law enforcement going forward. Um, but I think also there is some utility in, in rolling this out now to reassure people that I am taking uh, violent crime seriously. Now that doesn't mean that we're giving up on the other reforms that I talked about over the course of the campaign. As I've said several times, even in this interview, we're going to be doing those too. And some of those are things that are entirely within my control, and I'll be looking forward to talking about them in the months ahead. Um, thanks. One of the things that Just City uh, has, is focused on, particularly with our Court Watch program, but just generally, is, is transparency and accountability in this system. Um, it frankly doesn't exist in many places, um, and the DA's office historically is no different. What will you do to bring um, the public transparency and accountability to the work that you and your attorneys and your staff do? Yeah. I have a comprehensive transparency uh, proposal, and uh, I am ready to, um, uh, you know, uh, dis discuss it with my staff, um, but it's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> He's got jokes. He's got jokes. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> It's good to get the left because then it stalls and I have time to think of a to real think about answer. their actual answer, right. Uh, no, transparency, accountability now. Oh, yeah, 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 right, right, right. We demand it. Okay, got it, got it, understandable. Uh, no, um, I'm a big believer in transparency, I always have, and uh, one of the things that we need to do is get a handle on our data, a better handle on our data, um, and then not only use the data to analyze what works and what isn't working and how we need to change our priorities, but also publish that data in an accessible way so that the public, organizations like you, who you know will be keeping us accountable, the media and others uh, can see it. So um, I and 
tend to hire a full-time data analyst and um, I intend to work with uh, organizations like there's a national organization called the Justice Innovation Lab and one of the things they do is they specialize in helping exactly this, you know, the data analysis and the data publication for criminal justice actors from a progressive perspective um, with the goal of getting to a point where we will have a very, very robust, very user-friendly public-facing dashboard on our website. And so the public and the media and organizations like yours can track our progress or lack thereof. Are we doing better with reducing racial disparities? Are we doing better with reducing the wait time for pretrial detention? Reducing the number of people who are in uh, pretrial, pretrial detention? Are we um, doing better or worse when we're talking about the amount of time uh, it takes before we do an indictment from the time that it's uh, first you know, held to state and re referred upstairs? Um, how quickly are we disposing of cases? What, what are we doing with sentence lengths? What are we doing with uh, you know, adult transfer of uh, young defendants? All of these things that I think are appropriate metrics, not conviction rate or the number of years we're sending people behind bars, but what are we doing about recidivism? What are we doing about racial disparities? Those are measurable, quantifiable metrics, and I want to get to a point where we've got good ways of measuring those, and then everyone can look at them, and that's, that's my definition of transparency. I'm glad you mentioned pretrial reform. As, as you know, and, and probably many of you know, Just City has been very involved in, uh, in bail reform and conversations around how we can do that differently. We've paid bail for more than 1,000 people now with our bail fund. We were part of the, the team that has negotiated a new standing bail order uh, with the judges of Shelby County, we um, we had a resolution passed uh, by the county commission unanimously to put some measures in place to to fundamentally change how we decide who stays in our jail uh, and who doesn't. Uh, if these changes are implemented, and we're in the implementation phase now, and we have timelines and we have deadlines that we have to keep per an agreement with the county, um, that process will look a lot different. And for the first time, it will involve assistant dis district attorneys making a case, albeit quickly, uh, to a judicial commissioner, a, 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 um, uh, a judicial officer who has the authority to set bail and determine release. Uh, what will the DA's um, approach, what will your policies be like uh, in a system that for, for once, finally, uh, requires the state of Tennessee to make the case that someone should stay in, in jail and not just um, have a dollar amount set albeit not by the DA's office, but a dollar amount set that most people can't pay. What will your approach be? What will your policies be like? Uh, and, and any other comments you'd have on that reform that's about to happen? Sure. Well, the first thing I want to do is um, acknowledge uh, Just City's role and the ACLU's role in um, getting this uh, bail order. And, uh, you know, the, the bail reform was something that I had talked about throughout the entire campaign. And I have to say I'm actually a little pissed off at Just City because uh, they kind of stole my thunder. Um, I wanted to be the one that brought, uh, you know, lasting bail reform to Shelby County, but they kind of beat me to it. Uh, but, you know, we are going to not only in good faith implement the new bail order, but we're going to enthusiastically implement the bail order. And one of the things that I'm going to be talking to my ADAs about is taking seriously the idea that the strong presumption is in favor of pretrial release absent specific and credible evidence that that particular defendant is either a danger to the community or has a risk of flight, absent specific and credible evidence, we're gonna say, well, we're fine with pretrial uh, release. The total number of people that are languishing behind bars in 201 Poplar 
should be lower. Um, the average length of time that they are staying there waiting for their day in court should be reduced. The racial disparities that we already know exist there. The longer you're there at 201 Poplar, the more likely you are to be black. That needs to, um, if not completely equalize, get better. And uh, those are metrics that we're going to be looking at. And I, I think we'll get there if we uh, faithfully and enthusiastically implement the new bail order. And if there's, if there's more beyond that, if there's stuff above and beyond simply complying with the bail order that we see down the road that we can do, we'll do it. Excellent. What's it been like to go into an office, which is 200? This is a question that wasn't on the, the prep sheet. Ooh, we're improvising. Uh, okay. Um, go into an office of 200 folks, um, you know, most of whom are attorneys. Um, w w have there been surprises? Have there been frustrations? What, what, what do you want to tell us about walking into that, that office on the first day? So um, I am being interviewed by somebody who very early on, after I announced my candidacy, told me I had to watch the uh, documentary Philly DA, which is on Netflix or something? I, I forget where you... PBS still, I think. All right, Maybe PBS. Netflix. PBS. Um, and it documented the first year of reform prosecutor Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. And um, it was bracing and uh, eye-opening because there was a lot of internal opposition and obstruction from within his office and then from many other actors, you know, in local government. And so, you know, he couldn't just walk in there and snap his fingers and say, I decree reform. Uh, pitched battles, bureaucratic uh, battles, were the order of the day. So I walked in in a defensive crouch, you know, waiting for the obstruction. And uh, see, is there any wood around here I can knock? <laughs> but um, so far I haven't seen it. Well, you asked me what surprises me. It's a pleasant surprise. And the surprise is that the staff has been extremely welcoming. Um, extremely uh, open-minded, uh, very, very open to reform. Um, some of them because I think they, many of them, because they m have for years thought that the kinds of reforms and changes I've talked about are, are, are due. Um, but many others uh, who have just sort of adopt an attitude of, you know, we are professionals, you are the elected, um, you know, you tell us what direction you want to go and we will make it happen. And, you know, Sometimes when they say that, I'm thinking, are they just saying that because they don't want to be fired? Um, but I think to a large extent, they are saying it uh, because they are sincere. And uh, so that has been a pleasant surprise that I've had in uh, the last three and a half weeks. Yeah. This is a question I like to ask of in, it, uh, most folks I, I get to interview, and it is what role it, does mercy play in criminal justice and public safety? That's a lot of crap. <laughs> you're stalling again. We, we know your deal now. We're on to you. Uh, you know, so um, I happen to come from a Christian background. Um, and, of course, you know, Christianity has no monopoly on the concept of uh, mercy. There's many ways to get to that. But I'm just saying that because it's something that I think is ingrained in my own philosophical view and that obviously doesn't control or dictate what I do in my secular role as an elected official, but clearly it informs my, uh, you know, my, my policy discretion. Uh, you know, and I think that, uh, that any criminal justice system that doesn't leaven its decisions with a healthy dose of mercy is uh, not a just criminal justice system. It's not a functional criminal justice system. So we have to have a role for compassion, you know? And I think 
people in this county, regardless of where they stand in the political spectrum or the partisan divide, and indeed, whatever faith tradition or lack thereof that they come from, they understand the concept of second chances and third chances, you know, um, and, and forgiveness. You know, we may differ in the details about how do we apply it, but the, the fundamental notion of, uh, of mercy, it's something that we don't hear enough about when we talk about the criminal justice system. And I think maybe it's because we've had this culture of if you talk about that, then you seem weak or you seem soft, right? But, um, you know, I'm at least confident enough in my masculinity that I can talk about mercy, so, and, and I'm happy to do so. Thanks, thanks. Well, we've joked around a little, and I really want you to take this next question very, very seriously. Okay, all right, I promise. There was a moment um, in the campaign where, um, in a clear move that was pandering, to fashion forward Shelby County voters. You switched from Velcro shoes to lace-ups, and I see that you're still wearing what appear to be lace-ups, mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I wanna know now that you're elected, are you gonna switch back to Velcro and give the citizens of Shelby County back 15 to 20 seconds a day? <laughs> I have the ultimate answer to this oh question. Boy. Oh boy. First, I'm gonna point out that I am being interviewed by somebody who during the campaign uh, surreptitiously at several uh, campaign events took uh, zoomed in photos of my foot attire, you know, with the white socks and the Velcro, sometimes Velcro shoes or the Reeboks or whatever, and put a photo montage of them up on social media and said, these, these are not the foot apparel of a radical leftist. Um, but I'm going to say that I've actually got the perfect solution uh -huh. to this problem. I, I noticed now. Because my daughter bought me these, and they look like real lace-ups, but the laces are fake. This is and, and so I, I can just slip them on. Politicians. So, yeah? When, when, when the secret will now out. Slippery. You broke the story. I right? did. I right? did. Right here on yeah. the permanent record. You heard it here first. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. So... <laughs> It, and for those of you listening at home, right. I actually took off the shoe and demonstrated its easy off, easy on functionality. Right. Thank so. you. I was about to say that's excellent podcast <laughs> material when you have a, 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 a physical <laughs> gag. Um, okay. Well, thank you. One, uh, while we wrap up, one other thing I learned about you just today, I can't believe I didn't know this, is you can say anything backward. Yeah. Can you say, thanks for listening to the permanent record, backward? That's a long one. Mm -hmm. uh, no, Droser no. to Nem Nebrep, permanent record, listening to the et at Ninet Sil, thanks for Raf Sinet. Now put it all together, can you do it? No, no. no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Steve, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for sharing some of your, um, uh, of your thoughts and, and you know, um, just for being here in such a busy time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. That was my interview with newly elected Shelby County District Attorney Steve Mulroy. I hope you learned something, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Thanks to Ryan Azada for providing first-class podcast support on-site for this episode. A special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for a new version of our theme song, She Got Gone, performed live when we recorded this. That song and many other Jeff Hewlett originals are available on Jeff's newest album. Check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Twitter at justcity901. We're also on Instagram at that same handle. 
Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. Drosertanemnebrep et at ninetsilrafsinet.